agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum Jay Carson, as well as by Oklahoma Christian University political scientist Trey Orndorf. Hey, Jay. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, good Trey. Good morning, Trey. It's wonderful to be on the show with the both of you. It's been a long time, Jay. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's great that we can get the three of us together for this. Two quick things, though, before we get going today. First, uh, you might notice a new podcast badge design for the show. And if you don't see it in your app today, it should be coming soon. We've been using the same logo since Jay and I started the show in 2015, and we thought we'd try something new, as well as something that we think maybe will visually emphasize our bipartisanship, as well as the fact that we're not some, you know, kind of misogynist males-only show or something like that. Um, We think it will make it more likely that people who happen to just see the logo will check out the podcast. And if you have any thoughts about it, you know, positive or negative, please let us know. You can reach us, of course, at at politicsguys.com. Also, we're starting a contest today with the prize being six months of Patreon sustainer level benefits. That means access to our supporters only bonus shows, an invitation to our Politics Guys Slack group, your choice of a Politics Guys mug or tote bag, and a copy of my forthcoming book, Reforming Democracy, which should be coming out sometime next year. So here's how it works. To enter, all you need to do is share an episode of the show on Twitter, including a short message, uh, whatever you really want. You know, good insights, uh, great bipartisan podcast, uh, Jay totally owned Mike on that story, whatever you want to do, basically. Um, but make sure you also include our, twiddle, our Twitter, twiddle, Twitter handle, <laughs> at Politics Guys. That way we'll be able to see your Twitter share. Once we hit 100 shares, we will pick one person at random for that six months of sustainer benefits, and we'll count a maximum of three shares per person, though they have to be of different episodes with different messages to kind of keep things, you know, different. We'll also announce the winner on the show. Thanks for sharing the politics, guys, and good luck. Okay, guys, so I think we'll start today. Obviously, we're going to be focusing, uh, as we have been for a while now, on coronavirus. But today, we're going to begin with the $2 trillion stimulus package passed by Congress this week and quickly signed into law by President Trump. And of course, as that amount would suggest, there is an awful lot in it. Now, the main components, checks of up to $1,200 per adult and $500 per child for most American households, and that's estimated to cost around $300 billion. Then there's an additional $600 per week added to state unemployment insurance for up to four months, $500 billion in loans to coronavirus-affected businesses, $150 billion to state and local governments, $100 billion for hospitals and healthcare providers, $29 billion in grants, and another $29 billion in loans and loan guarantees for airlines, tax credits for businesses affected by the pandemic that keep employees on their payrolls, $30 billion for K-12 through and post-secondary schools, $25 billion for food assistance, and $24 billion for farmers and ranchers. Additionally, people with federally held student loans will be excused from making their monthly payments without interest on their balances accruing for six months up through September 30th. Now, on the monetary policy side of things, 
Early in the week, the Federal Reserve announced that it would do whatever it takes to provide stimulus through open-ended quantitative easing, basically buying treasury bonds as well as non-government securities at whatever level is required. Now, early estimates are that this may increase the Fed's balance sheet, which is another way kind of of saying creating money, by up to $5 trillion. And for the sake of comparison, during the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed increased its balance sheet by around $1.3 trillion. In addition, the Fed also plans to roll out a Main Street business lending program to provide emergency credit to smaller businesses that don't have access to those Wall Street debt markets. Now, that's an awful lot to take in. And so where I thought we could maybe start was with our general impressions of the legislation, uh, which I should point out, of course, we had you know, almost complete bipartisan support. Uh, so overall, just, just to start with, Jay, what, what's your general thought about this? Now, Trey, we'll move on to you. Okay, so my first, my first thought, I, I just say the, 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 the guy who's got to beating, be beating his head against the wall today is Andrew Yang. Um, <laughs> you know, for, for months, he ran, a, he ran a campaign on, I just want to send checks to people. <laughs> Um, and failed miserably, and uh, now Trump has done it. Um, but no, um, uh, actually, you know, look, I'm a I'm a conservative, I am a fiscal conservative, um, uh, and and any you know expenditure of of two trillion dollars, um, uh, sort of sort of makes me bristle. But uh, this is, I, I believe, one of these situations where this is a national emergency. It's a worldwide emergency. Um, and this, sometimes you, you have to do what you, you have to do. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with the idea that, look, I mean, some of this money is, is, uh, will likely be misspent. Some of it is, will probably be misallocated. Uh, sometimes it'll be more too much. Sometimes it'll be not enough. And that's just the nature of, of the beast when you're dealing with these kind of programs and massive expenditures. Um, that said, I, I think it's, uh, I, I think the steps that have been taken are, are, uh, are, are good ones. Um, and what are really one of the most important things to, to focus on in this for a lot of people that I, I don't know that this has, um, been talked about much in the media, but I, I've, I've spent the last week and a half, two weeks talking a lot of people in the business community and, and what they need is just sort of some sort of hope light at the end of the tunnel um, you know, everyone goes in with the idea that, look, this, this is temporary, but we're not sure how temporary, uh, and, and, and just this lifeline that there's going to be something to get them through, uh, is, is really tremendous, uh, uh, for them. So I'm, I'm, I, it's Mike, this, this may be the only time you hear me going on record saying, yes, I'm in favor of uh, a $2 trillion expenditure. Yeah. Um, yeah. well, but uh, you know, here, here we are. I mean, yeah. so. Well, Trey, before we get to you, I just want to say comment on something you, you said there, Jay, and and uh, about the accountability and the waste and that. And you know, I think it's totally incontrovertibly true that with that that amount of money in this short of a time drafting the legislation, there's no way that it can be as efficient as we would like. Which is why I was really glad that the Democrats were able to get in that provision for increased oversight of that 500 billion in uh, in lending and i know cuz initially when in, when the president trump was asked uh, what will the oversight be and he said well i'll be the oversight that's enough to make me go um uh, maybe i'd like a backstop on that but oversight or not i think 
think you're absolutely right that there's no way that this can be as efficient as we would like in normal times. But as you pointed out, this is about as far from normal times as, as we've seen outside of something like a World War II situation. Trey, what are yeah. your thoughts? I have a slightly different take. I, I mean, I don't I understand the necessity of trying to attempt to pump money into the economy for the purposes of moving things forward. So like Jay is saying, you know, maybe we have to, you know, hold our nose and uh, take a two trillion hit. But the fundamental problem with this is, is that I don't think that anybody is going to be everybody's everybody's on board now with the spending the two trillion. I don't think anybody is going to be on board with how we pay for the two trillion. Uh, in the same way that you know, Mike and I, we've talked on the show about how Republicans and Democrats are in this kind of unfortunate position where they can get the things passed on the spending side, but they can't get them passed on the on the pay side. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think we were seeing markets come up and down because, on the one hand, uh, yay on the uh, yay on the short term win. Uh, but what does this mean in the long term when it comes to are we going to have some bipartisan support on I don't know, raising taxes, for example, uh, uh, to pay for this. Yeah. And that for me, that's the part that it's wonderful that we have some bipartisanship on this. But the piece we're really going to need some bipartisanship is on the on the back end, on the pay side when there there isn't a crisis anymore. It's, it's always easier to get bipartisanship on spending money than yeah. it is on Absolutely. not spending money. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of just we can all agree on that. that. You know, I'm glad I'm glad you guys brought that up because this has sort of this is now the moment of uh, modern monetary theory, which if we, you could do a whole show on it. Other podcasts have. But in a nutshell, it's the idea that deficits don't matter nearly as much as we thought, at least for governments the size of the United States. And and, you know, the argument for this and I'll present the argument for this because I know you guys will present the other argument. No question. But. You can say that this is perhaps somewhat borne out by the 2008 financial crisis. And here's what I mean. In that financial crisis, we spent roughly $2.3 trillion in, in stimulus overall. And that was $1 trillion in fiscal stimulus through legislation and $1.3 trillion from the, from the Fed increasing its balance sheet. And at that time, I'm sure you guys remember that there were a whole bunch of people who were saying, this is going to come back. We're going to have hyperinflation, not just inflation, but hyperinflation, and it's going to be awful, and we're going to have to pay the piper. But it's twelve year, nearly 12 years later, and inflation has actually been considerably lower than historic averages. And the rest of the world, of course, is still clamoring to buy U.S. debt. And if we go back even further to World War II, and Trey, you and I talked about this a little bit uh, on, on the uh, supporters show is last week, is that if you look at deficit spending in terms of percentage GDP, from 1942 to 1945, we had deficits that totaled the equivalent of a little bit over $16 trillion at today's GDP levels. And we're not going to spend anywhere near that on coronavirus. And aside from back then, aside from a one-year spike, in inflation in 1946 and a, a little bit lesser spike in 1947, and that was after wage and price controls, which had been imposed during the war, were lifted. There wasn't a long-term rise in inflation. So I, I think before we dismiss the idea that we are setting ourselves up for some bout of horrendous hyperinflation, we need to consider the two maybe most relevant historical precedents and say, well, maybe not. What do you uh, let's let's start with uh, let's start with you, Trey, and then Jay. 
Well, I, one of the things I want to say is, is this is where I depart company from traditional libertarians who I think oftentimes have this um, they, they, they constantly think that the economy is going to fail. Right. And you should have all your money in gold because the end is nigh. Right. And, like and the problem for, is, is like, just, yeah. as you pointed out. Yeah. Said, like sorry. economic preppers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and I think that's unfortunate because. I don't think that you can argue that this can continue indefinitely. I think simply the size of the U.S. economy can take can take a lot, right? I mean, it's just as if as a rich person can borrow a lot more money than I can borrow, uh, and and probably do some good with it in in ways that I couldn't do because of what they have coming in and the amount of potential backers they'd have. In other words, people who'd buy their debt. Um, but that being the case doesn't mean that there is not at some point a true tipping point. And I don't think that this two trillion is going to be the tipping point. I don't think that's it. I think that your examples are spot on. What I worry about is a structural situation in which we can't ever agree that we're going to pay for the things that we're spending because at some point, individuals will stop be willing to buy our debt if we continue to do this. I mean, I don't think we'd be having this argument if uh, Congress would be, in general, willing to have some fiscal responsibility. Then we could all say, "Hey, look, two trillion—not a big deal." Well, you know, our our debt's relatively low. Let's let's pile it in for a minute. Make it three. Uh, but that's not how we that's not how we handle it in normal times. Neither the Republicans nor Democrats. Uh, and I, I hope that what this might do, I mean, this would have been a great opportunity. You were mentioning uh, Yang, Jay, um, to say maybe it's time to structurally rethink the way we talk about the social safety net. Uh, because, I mean, instead of having the piecemeal social safety net, having simply a reverse income tax uh, and undoing the rest might be the way to move forward. But I mean, those kinds of large things aren't happening here. Instead, we're getting a big uh, package. I think it will be useful in the short uh, run, um, but I think more creative individuals would think about a larger switch to programs and how we would uh, have that or at a minimum be having a conversation now about how we pay for it. What do you think, Jay? So I, I think we're all moder uh, modern monetarists now. Yeah. Um, that's where I'm just – We're hoping, um, yeah. You know, I, I, I think they're – I think something to distinguish, and again, with the caveat that I'm I'm certainly not an economist, um, uh, is is the injection of this kind of uh, uh, stimulus, the the emergency borrowing, this sort of flooding the, the market with with uh, liquidity uh, in time of a of a a tremendous crisis, versus this is the way we're going to live our our lives, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's a little a little different. For when you look at some of these other countries, uh, uh, Japan, uh, a lot of the countries in Europe that have adopted this this sort of uh, continual uh, sort of you know almost zero or negative interest rates, um, just as a this is our way of you know standard course of doing business. I think that does present the, the bigger inflationary risk over time. Um, but it's it's a balancing uh, risk a balancing of risks here where you've got uh, this tremendous hit to the uh, the market you could have if without uh, uh, some sort of safety net. I see. Sure. I'm yeah, you, you you could have um, uh, you know bankruptcies were... which would just just destroy wealth. Um, so um, I, I I don't I'm I'm not overly concerned 
uh, will this be inflationary uh, at some point? Yeah, um, uh, but we can live with a little inflation. Uh, and uh, again, where it's one of those situations where it, um, you know, the 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 medicine that they they may give you, the treatment they may give you uh, for a life threatening disease, uh, may likely have a whole lot of um, unintended consequences and side effects that that you might not like, and under ordinary terms you wouldn't want. Um, but given the alternative, you'll take it. So. Yeah. And, and that's something we will be discussing a little bit later on in the show. Uh, uh, but you know, one other thing I wanted to maybe look at in, in a way is in terms of what we like best and what maybe we're not so crazy about with this legislation. And for me, I, I think the best thing is, and both of you have kind of hit on that, it's just the overall size, just basically that whatever it takes sort of very bipartisan view and also pretty strong indications that if more is needed, more will more will be ready to come. There's not a lot of hesitance, even from the people who you might expect some from. And so I really think that between what the Fed's doing and what we're doing legislatively, that the prospects for limiting the economic damage and keeping a lot of people at least somewhat whole throughout this crisis are are pretty good. So that for me is the best thing. Well, what do you uh, what do you think, Jay? Uh, best thing is. Um one just the the symbolism of this uh that there is hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel that that businesses can say yes we can we can keep our employees on or we can promise them that they'll they're going to have jobs when we reopen whenever that uh you know hope hopefully uh you know within the next two months uh but but who knows but that that giving that that sort of light at the end of the tunnel because i think uh, we can sustain an awful lot if we have a sense of of when it's going to mm. be over or when, you know, when we're going to win. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, what I what I dislike about it, and again, this isn't a sp- specific piece of it. Um, I'll, I'll also say, I the the distribution, the um, just sending everybody checks. Uh, in, in some ways, I I like that sort of trusting the market. Um, right. Let everybody make their own decisions as to how they need to. Uh, either stimulate their economic situation or or that of their community. Wow. Okay. Um, I I got. I'm I sorry. I got to jump in right there because holy cow. I I never would have guessed that. I mean, that's actually my my least favorite thing because I I mean, for instance, I uh, Kimberly and I are going to get checks, but we're okay for the near term future, and so that's not nearly as targeted as I would have liked to. So I would have liked to have seen some of that three hundred billion for checks for everyone to go, for instance, to assistance for businesses who keep employees on their payrolls or, or, or things like that. So I actually disagree with you on that's my least favorite thing is that just kind of giving everyone a check. I get how administratively that's easier, but I'm not crazy about just checks for everyone, basically everyone. So sorry about that. I just had a, I had to jump in on that. I I figured you would uh, object to that. And, and, you know, look, usually my reasoning would, would be, I'm not crazy about just giving out money either. Um, but if if you're going to do it, I think allowing the market to allocate it uh, tend to be more efficient than than letting the government allocate See, it. See, I disagree. I, I would agree in general, but not in times of great uncertainty. Because, for instance, when Kimberly and I get our checks, I can tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to go out and spend that money because, like a lot of people, we're thinking, well, 
What if we need this? And so a lot, and that's the problem with cutting people checks like that. And you guys will probably both remember that back in when, when President George, uh, H, uh, George W. Bush did this, he said, go out and spend the money. But a lot of people aren't going to do that. That's why direct government spending or giving money directly to people who we know are going to spend the money, like people who all of a sudden have lost their jobs, that's going to be much more of an effective stimulus than this is. And that's why I disagree that under this circumstance, a, a check to me is just as effective as a check to somebody who lost their job because it's just not the case. Well, Trey, you, you, Trey, should, oh, you should spend it then. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I should act against my individual my, my individual self-interest for the greater good. And maybe Jesus, do something for the community, <laughs> would you, Mike? Go out and, yeah. Trey, what, what do you think of least and most favorite parts of this? I think for me, the, the, the hope that we're going to have, and I, I know that you're going to disagree on this front, but I like the idea that this might be a catalyst to continue to have direct payments to people for a reverse income tax. Hmm, okay. And that actually is an idea in conservative circles that dates back to the 60s and the 70s. And there was some talk about that. I think Milton Friedman was a was a big proponent of it, but it sort of fell off the radar for a long time. Yeah, and I think it's a chance to bring this back uh, because, again, you know, what you're kind of arguing there with Jay is how ought individuals to uh, to spend their government assistance. And I think by maybe normalizing the idea that we can have a payment. Uh, that we could think about downplaying other kinds of assistance programs and simply pay people uh, a basic wage, uh, regardless of the economic circumstances. Yeah. And just to be clear, a reverse income tax is, depending on how it's structured, is very similar to something like a basic income thing, though, depending on how you structure it, it would be it wouldn't necessarily be it wouldn't be uh, money to everyone, but money to people below a certain level. Is that is that what you're thinking about, Trey? Exactly, which okay. is, is which, what you're seeing here. I mean, you know, we have the idea 75000 and below is what's going to be seeing these full payments. I think there is some of those ideas baked into this. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And, you know, and again, oh, from ahead, where Jay. I'm sitting, I, can, I, I think I can literally hear Andrew Yang screaming, come yeah. on, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm, he's glad that his idea is getting, uh, getting some play, but certainly not under these circumstances. And, you know, another thing I really liked is the – boost to the unemployment insurance, just to give folks a sense of these things, the average unemployment insurance check is around $385 a week. And that's a pretty big revenue drop for most households. So that's $600 extra. That actually brings up the average benefit to the level of median weekly earnings, which is just over $900 per week. So I think that is an act that was an excellent provision that is going to make a big difference for a, a lot of people. Now, there are some pretty significant administrative challenges with all of those claims. We've seen you know, over 3 million claims and, and state offices are being swamped. We don't really have the infrastructure to deal with all those claims at once. And so that's a problem. But I'm glad that the amount that was allocated for that is what I consider to be a, a, a reasonably good amount. Yeah. Well, and, and Mike, and Mike I'll, I'll jump in. Sorry, Jay. Oh, no, I, I was going to say, I actually, again, it's it's unusual that you're going to hear me saying we need to increase uh, unemployment. Um, but this is a different situation. Yeah. Uh, this is not just situational, cyclical unemployment. Uh, this is not a matter of, of uh, where people just, uh, you know, need to go retrain to find a new job or something. This is this is an economic hit that is something completely out of our control, out of the employees control, out of businesses control. Uh, that is, is uh, 
uh, yeah. hit us. So I think this is, yeah, I, the additional unemployment I think is is good because over in traditional unemployment, the idea is, well, uh, you'll you'll get some money, uh, but it will necessarily be less money than you'd earn uh, working because otherwise it's sort of a perverse incentive. Right. Um, in this case, that's that's just not what we're dealing with here. It's not a matter of people aren't trying to find work. It's just that you know, every place is is closed. Um, one other thing I did want to throw in about what I don't like, uh, and this is maybe just a, a concern down the road, is my, and I'm wondering if if markets might be feeling this too, is that I'm, I'm concerned that this is absolutely an extraordinary moment. Um, but what happens um, in a couple of years when we have maybe a, a mini crisis, right? And it's, you know, it's like the cyclical recession sort of thing. Uh, are we going to see the the same sort of uh, the political rhetoric which will ramp up that this is this is a, a you know disaster on on par with coronavirus? We need another trillion dollar stimulus, and this will become sort of the new normal of any time uh, you know there is there is any sort of hit to the economy, whether it's uh, uh, this uh, or uh, uh, just you know, again regular cyclical recession or a bubble bursting or something like that that you're going to have this extraordinary reaction. And I, I think that's that's a bit of a concern going forward. See, I, not not for me so much, because I think that, I mean, the, the typical people who would voice strong opposition to that will definitely still be there. And so I think this is, as you pointed out, such an extraordinary time that uh, we're, we're not, it's not like we're going to see anything, we hope, right, to, to, the, to the potential extent of this. And not only that, but it's the uncertainty of this, right. where there's yeah. so much we don't know. And that's the sort of thing that makes everyone incredibly conservative. So I, I actually think we're going to be, uh, that's not going to set any sort of, uh, any sort of a precedent there. Um, all right. Uh, any other, any other final thoughts on the, uh, on the stimulus bill Trey, before we move on? No, I think I'm good. Okay. Uh, well, you know, in the last week, we saw more and more people call for President Trump to fully invoke the Defense Production Act of 1950 to better respond to the pandemic. And the act that basically empowers the president to require businesses to accept and prioritize government contracts for essential products, also allows the government to control the distribution of products and services, and allows the president to create incentives for industry to produce critical materials. And until very recently, President Trump has resisted invoking this power aside from using it to prevent hoarding and price gouging. And the argument up until Friday was that the threat of invoking it is enough to get businesses to voluntarily step up their production, of these critical goods and services. I mean, President Trump actually you know, this week suggested that the act is a form of nationalization. He said, call a person over in Venezuela, ask them how did nationalization of their businesses work out? Not too well. The concept of nationalizing our businesses is not a good concept. And I certainly agree with that. But of course, that is right. That yeah. isn't this. Yeah. But on Friday, we saw a change, of course, when President Trump did invoke the Defense Production Act to require GM to produce more ventilators. Uh, and Trump specifically directed the HHS Secretary Azar to use any authorities under the law to require GM to accept, perform, and prioritize federal contracts for ventilators. And the statement from the White House said, our fight against the virus is too urgent to allow the give and take of the contracting process to continue to run its normal course. GM was wasting time. 
Today's actions will help ensure the quick production of ventilators that will save American lives. And then late Friday afternoon, that was that was the official statement. And it sounds sort of, you know, normal and official. Then President Trump jumped in in his Trumpian way and said, now it turns out we'll have to be producing in large numbers over the next 100 days. We will either make or get in some form over 100,000 additional units. Uh, We're going to have plenty. Well, let's hope so. So uh, let's start with you, Jay. What do you think? Was President uh, Trump, I guess, first off, right to make fuller use of the DPA? And should he have done so earlier? Um, I, I think he's, it's it's fine him doing it. Um, my sense is he's probably doing it to give cover to GM and other automakers uh, in terms of uh, their labor situation, right? It's 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 not a matter. I, I don't think it's a matter of GM saying, "Gosh, we don't want to build these these ventilators." Um, I, I do think it's a matter of um, sort of saber rattling, saying, "Listen, if if need be, you can." Uh, enforce this upon uh, uh, essentially any workers who might might refuse to to do this, um, which was the case back in the U.S. versus uh, or the sheet and tube case um, in 1950, which was you know probably the only last time this was really invoked. Um, so I, I think he I think he was right, and he was the, the statement you quoted was right also. I mean, it it is nationalization of an industry. Uh, but uh, let, let me let me stop you there because that that's incorrect. The nationalization of an industry is when the government actually takes actually over it. and owns right. an industry. And this is the case where the government is paying for these services and these products, and so it is temporarily directing that production. But they can't do it without pay under the law. And also, correct. and also built into this, generally speaking, are provisions where, for instance, they would say. If you produce, if we contract for this number, even if we don't need this number, it turns out we will still pay you for this. And that is that is very, very far from nationalizing an industry, right. which is the government takeover. I just want to well, make those that are, clear. Those are protections that are, are required under the, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment. Um, but in, in terms of I, I shouldn't have said uh, nationalization because, yeah, it's not the government owning the, the industry. But uh, it, it is it is a, a big step in the control that, that we don't typically see. Um, so I, I think he was right to use it as sort of the, the threat, uh, although I don't even know if you need a threat. I mean, actually, what what I have seen um, uh, among the businesses that I deal with over the last week is is a clamoring for uh, how can we produce something that's going to be useful uh, to to this effort? Um, and that that stems from one, just a plain old economic interest of. Uh, look, the usual stuff that we're selling, we either can't sell or aren't selling. Um, and and second, uh, I think there is a sense of they want to be uh, good citizens, and uh, you know the the also uh, have a high degree of confidence that uh, they'll get paid. So I that I mean, I I, I don't think most uh, uh, companies need that that stick of um, uh, the DPA to um, uh, to force them to do this. Uh, but it does then, I think, give them some uh, some cover um, with uh, with other folks that, that they're working with. Yeah. So and just one other thing, Trey, before we get to you, uh, in terms of previous invocations, 
both President uh, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush used it, uh, and this was in 2000, up in, and then in 2001, there was a California electricity crisis, and they invoked it for that. And then President Trump actually in 2017 used it uh, in regards to the Department of Defense taking action to target critical technology item shortfall. So it actually has been used in the past, though perhaps not, not perhaps, though not to the extent that we are, we are likely to see it today. So, Trey, what's your, what are your thoughts on this? I have looked and looked, and Jay, I, I get what you're suggesting, that he's doing this as kind of a preemptive labor movement, maybe. Uh, but I honestly can't see what the before and after difference is or will be. Um, you know, GM in their own statement uh, don't, don't even really address uh, Trump, the, either the formal White House uh, response or Trump, the Trumpian, as you put it, Mike, uh, response arguing, quote, that they've been working around the clock for over a week to meet this urgent need, end quote, and they're going to continue. The The piece goes on to say, I'm just not positive what it is that this has changed. Uh, so maybe there's something happening behind the scenes, you know, in a place that the three of us can't see. I can answer um, that. Yeah. And that, you know, but <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. no, seriously, I can answer that. It's the biggest change is involves the allocation part, not the not the orders to produce, because even if a lot of producers are stepping up, as we've seen across the country, right? GM, 3M, all kinds of places are doing their best to ramp up and change production. And that is that is great. The problem is one of allocation. And so you have instances where, you know, let's say uh, uh, Wisconsin or Michigan, where, you know, they have some cases and they're thinking, well, we might need some ventilators, so let's put in a bid. But then New York has a much more pressing need, and so it gets into a price war sort of thing. And then there are also instances where other countries want these things, and they're bidding. And the thing that the DPA allows the federal government to do is say, you are going to give all of your ventilators or what have you to us, and we will allocate them based on need. And so that is the big change. That is what the governors in their call to president in their call with President Trump on Thursday were were focusing on. So that really is the critical part, that central dispersing allocating authority that makes sure that it's not ability to pay that gets ventilators and other equipments to the states and regions that need them, but it is need. And that, I think, is the huge difference. And I think that President, Trump, President Trump's invocation of that is going to save a lot of lives. And I think that's a really good thing. Any other thoughts, guys, on, uh, on the DPA? I'm calling it the DPA. I don't know if people are doing that, but it's just, you know, my thing. So. All right. Um, let's move on then. Uh, you know, I said this would be a little controversial, and, and certainly President Trump this week has taken a lot of heat. Uh, you know, earlier this week, he said, uh, well, we'd like to have the U.S. economy open for business by Easter, which falls on April 12th this year. And But based on what we think we know about the spread of coronavirus, there's a very good possibility that cases won't peak in the New York epicenter until sometime in early May, with later peaks in currently lesser affected areas. For instance, in Jay, in, in, in your, you're in my state of Ohio, Governor DeWine is saying that the state's peak is likely to be one to two weeks after New York, which would put it in the mid, mid-May somewhere. And many conservatives, especially, I think, are increasingly focusing on the economic costs of the shutdown of, you know, major parts of the economy, arguing that it's just unsustainable to keep it going for multiple months and that 
we need to consider these economic costs, which also have health consequences of their own, as we try to figure out how long to continue widespread shutdowns and shelter-in-place orders. So, uh, guys, let's start with you, Jay. What do you what do you think about this? Is President Trump taking too much heat, or or, or what's your what's your kind of view on this? Getting the economy going again? Think is it premature or what? Well, I think the the goal of saying these sort of things uh, in an aspirational sense, uh, I think, is good. Um, you know, it's it, this is one of these uh, situations where whatever Trump says, you know, there's going to be an element of the press that's going to say, "Aha, he's he's denying the science and so forth," and it's not going to peak till then. Um, but in this kind of situation, sometimes a little bit of uh, optimism, even if it is not. Um, Oh, I mean, maybe maybe as likely as possible. But even again, he's he's not saying we're going to have the economy open uh, for business in full uh, by by April twelfth. It's okay. his hope. Be great. It's, yeah. I hope I, yeah. I hope we get there. Yeah. You know, uh, and it gives people something to shoot for, and it, and it gives. I mean, this is uh, you know something that that uh, Governor Dewine <clears throat> has said numerous times. Look, the more we do now, the better off we're going to be, and the sooner we'll be able to get get back to normal. Uh, I mean, the more we do now in terms of, of social distancing and, and, and you know, following the uh, protocols. Um, so, I, I mean, look, I think it's it's important that he, he holds out hope. And, you know, depending on what he means by get the economy going again, uh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of sectors of the economy that are now ramping up. I mean, in these kind of the production stuff, in uh, shipping, in uh, healthcare, there's there tons of uh, new jobs that are gonna, going to open up um to to meet this this emergency uh so we may see some some economic growth there is it going to be the same normal open for business as we we had seen you know as it was a month ago uh um, by mid-april probably not um so i don't know i i I don't i think it's um you know i guess there's two schools of thought the one one school of thought is uh, when you're in a crisis you you say we got to keep going just keep going uh and it's one step at a time and you just keep keep saying, uh, we're going to make it, tomorrow's going to be better. Um, and then there's the other school of thought, which is deliver the bad news first, and then uh, uh, sort of, you know, manage expectations and say, listen, no, we're uh, we're likely going to be closed uh, through June or something, but then if you can reopen in, uh, uh, in, in mid-May uh, or early May, you're a hero. Um, See, that to me, Jay, that makes wait. more sense, I don't know, as an approach, but yeah, yeah I just wanted to point that out. Well, and, and, and look, it, it makes more sense in the approach of, um, you know, look, I, I don't know. The, here's the other, the other piece. And again, I'm, I'm bringing, because this is a weird time, I'm, I'm bringing more just personal stuff uh, into this. But, you know, what I can offer in terms of dealing with the, the business community, one of their concerns is, um, for example, I represent a number of, of uh, restaurant organizations. So. They have a lot of folks, uh, uh, servers who who they just had to had to lay off. They're taking unemployment right now. Uh, places like Amazon are completely ramping up. So uh, if if this is like an open ended, we don't know when anyone will come back. Uh, I think there's a little bit of concern. A lot of places just may lose employees, trained employees uh, who go to work for Amazon and say, well, maybe I, I like this better. Um, uh, and then when they go to open up again, they're they're stuck with the costs of having to find new employees, having to train new employees, um, which are not insignificant. Right. Uh, and and that's 
kind of why I think business is looking to you. Look, can you can you give us a date uh, that we can at least sort of say, hey, we we think we'll be uh, back to normal or close to normal um, by by such and such a date, so that they can communicate that to uh, their employees, former employees, to their vendors, to their you know that that sort of thing. They don't want to lose uh, other industrial employees. Like I said, they don't want to lose a a, a supplier. Um, so well, I, that's, that's, yeah. can, can I respond to that a little bit, Mike? Yeah, please do. Uh, so I mean, Jay, I, I understand. I think that you're kind of giving them the, the ultimate sympathetic view. The problem though is, is that Trump's comments are not coming into that reasonable uh, argument that you're giving. Uh, it's in the context of him complaining that the economy is going to hurt his numbers and that all these really bad people uh, are out to get him in the election. And then he, he throws this number out. Uh, so I, mean, I, th- I think you're giving him this kind of credit for a time that isn't due. And likewise, I agree with your underlying assumption that business needs to have a time when we're going to be able to come back. Um, but even in an aspirational way, uh, what good is that aspirational number if it's not something that businesses can actually use? I mean, working with numerous universities, I can tell you that none of us are planning on reopening uh, in May uh, based on the data. And so, uh, I mean, both in the context of what he's saying, which is this is this has primarily been a hoax out to harm me and the economy's closed to harm me. And that's why all of you evil people out there are doing this. Uh, his, his comment comes off as disingenuous. And as you've already noted, if the, if the goal is to send a positive signal to business, well, he's certainly not giving uh, a number that anyone in business or in the public sector is throwing around as the time that we're going to reopen. Uh, I mean, I, I just I think you're giving him far too much latitude uh, for the uh, open by Easter. And, and as a religious person, I'd love to be able to say I'll be attending uh, Easter services. So maybe he's, you know, banking on that as kind of a, a positive bit of goodwill. But I, I don't think that's the right way to lead. Well, you know, one thing I think we can all agree on is that the fundamental problem here is that we're not dealing with risk. Risk is something you can measure and adjust for and, and build in. We're dealing with uncertainty on yeah. really on both sides. And here's what I mean. We don't know how severe coronavirus is going to be in this country because we just have still have very insufficient testing. So we can't accurately calculate the potential costs and human suffering and death. I mean, right now, 538.com is doing this thing where they interview a bunch of experts and get some sort of like expert consensus range. And that has huge variability. It goes anywhere from uh, anywhere from 36,000 to 1.1 million deaths. I mean, that's that's, you know, an incredible range. And it's the same thing is true on the economic side. I mean, maybe we have more to go with there, but it's still not at all clear how bad things will get in the economy if we continue on with this. Just yesterday or the day before, some federal, some Fed uh, researchers released a report about the consequences of uh, the 1918 pandemic on the market, suggesting that maybe shutdowns won't be as 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 economically horrific as they are. But, you know, my point is, is we just don't know. And in that environment of uncertainty, even when everyone wants dates and certainty, I feel like creating a false sense of that. There's a fine line to walk where you you want to tell people that there will be a, a date certain, but 
there isn't a date certain. And so I think that puts that puts even a level handed level headed calm president in a rough situation. But for someone like President Trump, I mean, I got to say, talk about somebody who and this is policies aside, talk about somebody who just temperamentally is about the worst suited person to guide the country through a crisis of this magnitude. I can't think of anyone in political life who would temperamentally be, you know, less well suited for this. And that's just truly unfortunate. Jay, um, I, sorry, yeah. I jumped in there. Any, uh, any... Yeah, we, so we just piled I'm on not, you. I, I, can't, your turn. I can't disagree with you on that. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, the other thing, of course, is, you know, and I hit the testing thing and everyone does, but, you know, we just recall early this month, President Trump said everyone who wants a test will can get a test. And we know that's just flat out a lie. And it's been it was a lie then. It's a lie now. But we need we need to still keep up ramping up testing capacity to the point where it's not a lie and not just where we can test all potential infections, people who come in with symptoms, but actually to be able to do random sampling of people because of that asymptomatic period. And until we can randomly sample communities, we're not going to have a real sense of where we are and where we're likely to be headed. And of course, as as listeners and you guys know, the places that have done the best so far have been places like Germany and other folks that have just had massive, they just flooded testing. And of course, you know, we lost that entire month of February for reasons we've talked about before. And that just really puts us behind the eight ball there. Well, yeah, I mean, there's more than 100,000 cases uh, as of today in the United States. But, of course, that's only confirmed. And, Shay, you're right. Yeah. Uh, we're, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. And, you know, also, I want to point out that the, the analogy the president made this week with automobile deaths is, uh, and for those of you who haven't heard it, basically saying, you know, we have all these all these automobile deaths, but we don't stop people from driving. And last year it was just under 40,000 automobile deaths. And that would, of course, be on the very optimistic side of coronavirus deaths. But it's not a good one because to make it a proper analogy, and I was thinking about this, it would have to be a situation where you'd have cars that drove fine for a few miles, then they got on the highway and all of a sudden they started to not just crash, but pass along some weird software bug through, I don't know, you know, Bluetooth or Wi-Fi that would cause other cars to drive fine for a while but then also suddenly crash. And if that were happening, we would be shutting down uh, most most driving for sure. And so I can understand the intuitive appeal of that analogy, but it is not a very good analogy at all. Any, any? Well, I, I think... Go ahead, go ahead, Trey. Well, I think part of the reason that it's appealing is because it's the, the idea that, and we talked about this on the Reasons to Be Optimistic show, Mike, um, but to reiterate a little bit here is that I think we do live our lives in the course of probabilities, uh, but I think most people are just simply blind or they, they ignore the impact that their decisions have on other people in probabilistic situations. And, and I think for a lot of people, in the, at least in the United States, we do not and have not thought carefully about how our actions affect other people's health. And I think it kind of rubs up against our idea of individuality uh, in a way to say, well, if, I, you know, me going out when I'm sick, well, that does, that's not going to hurt anything. And I think in this circumstance, because we are so in tune to think that way, I think that makes that analogy 
appealing because, again, we don't like to think about our actions with health as impacting anybody but ourselves. And we like that kind of narrative. Well, you know, I went to work sick because I'm just this awesome human being who pushes through everything um, and forget that that can have profound implications on some of the most um, vulnerable people, um, coronavirus or no. Yeah. So do you think, I'll start with you, Jay, on this. Do you think that President Trump is likely to issue some sort of, well, of course, should point out that the restarting the economy thing, this is something that where, I, as I said to someone earlier this week, thank God for federalism. That's not something I, I necessarily will say as a matter <laughs> of course, but of course it's the state governors who make these decisions. And in some cases, the local governments are able to make these decisions. And so regardless of what federal guidance or guidelines that President Trump puts out there, it's still going to be the authority of the state governors to decide to whether or not they want to rescind these these orders or not. And so, for instance, sure. it doesn't matter what President Trump might say in the next week or so about restarting the economy. We pretty much know that Governor Cuomo and, you know, is not going to do that's not going to happen in California and a bunch of other places. I, I think you guys would probably agree with me there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think you're right. This is a, a thank God for federalism because uh, we in in the you know we have a, a very big country, a very diverse country, and there's going to be a lot of places that recover quicker. Uh, there are going to be places that that don't recover. There's going to be places where a certain industry is uh, so indispensable it needs to get moving uh, before others. And I, I think you know having the economy come back on, it's going to be a little bit like. You know, after you after you shut down the 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 engines on the uh, uh, you know the, the spacecraft kind of thing, you've got to turn them back on in the right order. Um, and and there's going to be some of that, uh, I think. Uh, and I think the best evidence we've seen is is it's you know we're not going to have like a blanket. Here's coronavirus across the country. It's going to be hot spots uh, here and there, and and some places will recover more quickly than others. Um, so I, I I agree. There's there's not there is not a a switch in the White House uh, that that is sort of turn economy on, turn economy off. Yeah. Um. And and I think that's you know like I said, we're going to see pieces of the economy maybe that are are going to be taking off uh, uh, in 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 the next couple of weeks because of uh, ramp ups and in the healthcare uh, spending and uh, building facilities and, and that sort of thing. Um. Uh, where we're going to see dips in other places, but it's it's yeah. I, I I think I think the idea that you I guess I guess I just run counter. I think this is what you're saying. There is no uh, just get the economy on or off. It's yeah. it's going to be a matter of fits and starts and bits and pieces coming back online at at different times. Yeah, and you know here's where I think some media outlets on the left are being unfair to President Trump and conservatives in, in this sense, not so much in terms of President Trump's tone which is, I think, you know, is is you're generally pretty awful, but the the basic idea behind it is that there are inevitable trade-offs. And so a lot of media outlets on the left are basically saying President Trump is completely ignoring or getting anger or getting upset with the public health experts and but from people, supposedly people inside the administration, what he is doing 
from from what little we you know we know from anonymous secondhand uh, accounts is he is having both the administ- both the public health people and the economist business people make their strongest case and trying to weigh those things and and it's hard to it's hard to wrap your head around this when we have this immediate crisis but it's true that econ- that long term economic uh, you know problems cause health problems cause quality yeah. of life. And those are things that have to be factored in because we certainly would not shut down the entire economy to save one life or a hundred lives or probably a thousand lives. But the point is, is there is a line there and the government has been in the business of deciding the value of a life is as crass as it sounds for a long time now. And those are the tough decisions that have to be made. And so just saying, well, we will protect life at all costs. That's just simply not that, not the case. That's a, that's a false choice in a lot of ways. And so I'm, I've been disappointed with a lot of the coverage on the left that I've seen that, that seems to, that seems to paint it that way. Uh, Trey, any other, any other thoughts from you on this? No, I'm feeling good. Okay. Um, (laughs) well, you know, I thought we might uh, end by focusing on something a little more positive with our relatively new feature, our recommendations for the week. And so I will start off with a couple of things. Last week, I mentioned that I'm restarting my uh, my my detective novel, and uh, some people actually uh, commented, with put in some comments and things like that. I have it set up as a Google Doc. And thank you for all your comments. I posted another chapter. And so if you're interested in checking that out and commenting on it, either on the document itself or through email, uh, you can do that. And uh, in addition to that, oh, I should mention that if, you, if you're using the link from last week, I had to change it for some weird compatibility reasons. So check the link in today's show notes. Also, for those who are not into that, I'm going to recommend two shows that have been a diverting pleasure for me. The first is Dairy Girls from Netflix, and the second is Brockmire on uh, well, IFC or Hulu. And Dairy Girls is, uh, well, just kind of weird and funny and set in Northern Ireland in the 1990s. And Brockmire is probably my favorite comedy right now. And it's this disgraced play-by-play announcer. It's on-air meltdown, and it's just filthy and very funny. And see, the first couple seasons are pretty dark season three less so but it is uh, a great respite from you know these troubled times so those are my recommendations this week uh jay what about you what do you have for us um so last week uh again i'm um i'd like to say like i'm, I'm reading some some real highbrow stuff but i'm not just well i am i am um i'm rereading um neil gaiman's american gods okay which if you've watched the, the series which i actually haven't um but the book is just really, really good um, on a whole lot of levels. And it, it really gets to this whole soul of America sort of thing uh, that, that we don't think about. And it's sort of a scene through the eyes of an Englishman, you know, who, who, who wrote it. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the undercurrents that, that are there that we don't even think about. So anyway, American gods, if you haven't read the book, read the book um, in uh, browsing Netflix, uh, uh, there was a really good uh, documentary uh, on uh, Miles Davis uh, that I enjoyed immensely. Um, uh, and I, I forget the exact name of it, but it's, you know, Miles Davis and it's trending on um, on uh, Netflix. Uh, if you're into jazz uh, at all or music of any kind, um, uh, it's it's fascinating. And, and uh, Miles Davis has always been, just been a sort of a fascinating character uh, to me. So he spans sort of this whole 
um, uh, period of jazz from from uh, early bebop up through this you know the real crazy sort of experimental thing that he was he was into in the uh, 70s and the 80s. Um, uh, that and my other sort of substantive thing, and and I'll throw this out in in that. Um, it's sort of like the must-see TV uh, here in Ohio is uh, Governor DeWine's two o'clock press conference. Um, and Mike, you've probably been watching these too. Um, but uh, there, there is very much a it, it compared to the you know again a Republican leader who is is not Trumpian uh, in terms of his uh, his attitude, uh, his his messaging. Uh, Mike DeWine is probably as far as you can get from uh, from Donald Trump. Uh, and as he's really earned some some national praise, uh, even from the uh, the that crazy left wing media uh, for the leadership he's shown in Ohio, and also our, our uh, health director, um, uh, Dr. Amy Atkin. Um, so it's it's one of these um, it, it's it, it's fascinating uh, watching, um, and uh, it's he does these every day, two o'clock. Uh, it's sort of there's this little like inspirational bit of, you know, here we can get through it and here's what's going on. Here's some nice stories and pictures. And then here's the Dr. Atkin with the, um, uh, you know, medical summary for today. And uh, then you have Lieutenant Governor who sort of gives the business summary and where things are and what's next. Um, but if if you're craving sort of if people, you know, see Trump as the, you know, you, you don't have the adult in the room kind of thing. Well, Mike DeWine, I think, is the adult in the room. And uh, uh, I, I think it's 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 worth watching. Okay, Trey, what That's do you have for us? Well, I, you know, one, one of the things I'm, I'm going to have recommend a book uh, called Da Vinci and Love. Uh, and I want to recommend to listeners as you're kind of cooped up and you're thinking about things is one of the one of the things I work really hard at is to read from a variety of areas. Uh, I had a really good friend in uh, Daytona. And she is a poet, uh, Dr. Uh, almost Dr. Jessica Kester. And uh, and so for the first time, I, I have always tried in the past eight or so years to rotate. So I'm always reading something that's fiction, something that's nonfiction. And, and so as to balance myself out, because I'm always I don't know about you guys, I'm a, 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 I would just tend towards nonfiction. And so I've made a conscious effort to do this. Uh, and so I nabbed Da Vinci in Love because it's kind of the perfect length of a book. It's a it's an hour if you listen to the audiobook because I'm always listening to audiobooks while I run, and it is a book that I both deeply appreciated and loved. It, it follows Da Vinci, but in cont- the contemporary time, uh, and it, and if you think that sounds bizarre, it is, and it is bizarre in a fun way. But it's Da Vinci and Love, and the cool thing about it right now, uh, Apple uh, Books has the podcast or excuse me the audiobook for free. Uh, so you can actually download the free version of the audiobook, and uh, it is exactly an hour. So if you'd like to run about 6.2 miles, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's a, I think a lot of great recommendations, and thanks, guys, for that. And also, thanks to everyone for listening. But if you are a Patreon supporter, there will be more. We're going to, on our, on our special supporters-only show, we're going to be talking about uh, the 2020 elections, because there still will be an election, and how maybe we think coronavirus will be affecting that, as well as a pretty important Supreme Court case. The court, the court is still at work, and uh, about uh, this is a case about the insanity defense in a death penalty case, and maybe we'll take some listener questions if we have time. 
So if you are interested in becoming a supporter, where you can also get, in addition to add to that, ad-free versions of everything, as well as other good stuff, just check us out at patreon.com slash politicsguys. And please remember, if you can't afford to become a supporter, but you want that bonus content, just let me know. Send me an email, Mike at Politics Guys, and I will be happy to get you set up with full access. If you have a question, comment, correction, or just want to say hi, you can do that at mailthepoliticsguys.com. For more great discussions, please check out our Bipartisan Politics subreddit. We have the URL in the show notes, or you can just search for Bipartisan Politics on Reddit. We also post stuff on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we are on Twitter at politicsguys. And remember, we are doing that Twitter politics guys uh, uh, contest referral. I don't know what I'm calling it. I should have given it a name. Anyway, remember that. All right. The executive producer of the politics guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilk. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.